Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good morning. Welcome to Life Happens. Are you prepared? This is our weekly radio program for baby boomers and their families, where we address the challenges we all face as we age. We talk about aging as a lifestyle, the issues that must be confronted, and the careful planning that's required to avoid crises in the future. Life Happens will provide you with tools to educate and prepare yourself for events like retirement, protecting your income and assets, planning to pay for nursing home and home care, special needs, wills and trusts, planning for an untimely death, and resolving disputes in an Allen court. As the laws and necessities for planning and care continue to evolve, Life Happens will help you make smart decisions to ensure your goals are reached and your family's needs are met. Good morning, everyone. I'm Aaron Connor from Pure Connor and Strauss. Joined by my definitely most frequent radio compadre, Mr. Frank Hemming. Good morning, Frank. Good morning, Aaron. And we are here to talk about some, you know, legal issues, I would say, uh, about Medicaid. Usually when we talk to Frank, um, we have some strategies that we want to discuss that we probably will be implementing more and more, but we will kind of get into that as we go along. Um, you know, for once, it was a good week to be a Giants fan. Um, I don't know that that's <laughs> going to continue much into the future, Frank, but, you know, this past week it was, was uh, actually not even a close game, very surprisingly. Yeah, and, and I, we haven't had many of those in the past four or five years where you didn't, where the game wasn't really in doubt, you know, until the very end and they, they pulled it out. So I was going to say that we almost saw a no-hitter in the World Series last night. I don't know if you happen to have – that on or know what was going on, but I was staying up to watch that and that got broken up in the eighth inning. So that was almost a history making event, which would have only been the third one in playoff history, which would have been pretty cool, but it didn't happen. Right. Well, I was keeping an eye on it since I graduated from Shen and, you know, Ian Anderson graduated from Shen, obviously much long after I did, but (laughs) we have not had really a richness of uh, professional athletes from this area. I mean, we've, you know, had several, but it's not, I guess, commonplace where in other areas of the the country, I feel like, you know, you see lots of football players, you know, from Southern States or, you know, that kind of thing, more baseball players from California. But um, we've had several people go high in the baseball draft, but I I think Ian Anderson looks like he has the chance to be the best of all those players. So certainly so far, I would say, but he's young. So, but hopefully he can keep doing this. So, yeah, I, I still, I mean, I, I could like him personally because of his ties to the area, but I, as a Mets fan, I, I, I can't say nice <laughs> things about Atlanta because it's just it's not in me. <laughs> but it was, but it, was a, but... it was, you know, it, since it was a potential historic event, I feel like I should put that aside and, and watch the game. But yeah, well, as a Yankees fan, I can't, I can't root for the, the Astros because I, I just, you know, I think they've done things the wrong way. And I understand. So, and, and whether their um, uh, punishment was enough or not, I'm, I, I would debate. But on to, on to other things. Although, I guess the law is sometimes about punishment, right, Frank? So. 
<laughs> that's not really what we do for a living, but yeah, <laughs> we could, we could potentially veer off there if, if, if we had to, but it's not really our bread and butter, so to speak. Well, I, I do think that some clients feel like they're being punished for decisions they've made, right? So if we wanted to segue to that, because yes. Yes. unfortunately, maybe they don't look like bad decisions at the time that they're made, or they're made without really getting some advice or doing some research. I, I think Frank and I say it at least weekly, if not daily. It's much easier to find out if something is the right way to handle things proactively than it is to try to unwind it reactively. Yeah, I, I actually have a current case that actually goes really well with this. So uh, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about Go that for it. a second. So, so we have a current client. Um, he came in. Uh, he originally met with us. And he wanted to talk about his mom and getting sure that his mom was getting proper care and stuff, and she is in a nursing facility in the area. And unfortunately, when we started asking questions, it turned out that he had given away about 100000 plus of money from mom to himself, his sister, his kids, you know, the family members. And, you know, he said mom was completely on board with this. This is what she wanted. She knew her health was getting not great and she was getting older and she wasn't going to need her money and they unfortunately had also gotten advice from their tax professional that said you know you can give up to fifteen thousand dollars per person per year there shouldn't be any problems with it so they had made these substantial gifts and then mom wound up in the nursing home so then when we had to do our five-year look back we found all these transfers and unfortunately none of them were made more than five years ago so they're now on the table um, so we were able to hopefully get this family a good result here. But the the kind of the, the path that we had to take was much more complicated because we've got a lot of missing funds. And even though they didn't do anything wrong and they certainly didn't go outside of mom's wishes, it wasn't the right thing to do uh, at the time. And unfortunately, they just didn't get a lot of good advice. Well, that uh, annual gifting rule, the IRS rule, has, has thrown a lot of people for loop. Um, over time. Now, it's increased. I believe when I went to law school, it was $10,000 per person per year. And it had been there quite a while. Um, but it, it is increased since then. It's been indexed. Um, and who knows which number numbers the government decides to index or how they choose those. Because, Frank, how many, how many dollars do you get to keep in a nursing home of income every month? Of income, you get to keep $50, plus technically they deduct any health insurance premiums that you make. So it's essentially 50 bucks of your own money to do with whatever you want, and they let you keep enough to pay your health insurance premiums. That's it. And that number has been the same since 1965, but other numbers yeah, they, they, they haven't. So I died. <laughs> they somehow the index missed that one. Yes. I <laughs> uh, wasn't in school that day, maybe. I'm not, I'm not sure, but... Um, that one has always struck me as odd, but the, the annual gift tax exclusion uh, is that. It's an exclusion for gift tax purposes, and one of those questions we get fairly frequently is, am I subject to estate tax or gift tax? And 99% of our clients are not because the New York limit is $5 million and change. The federal limit is double that. That doesn't mean that, you know, we, we don't have a few clients who are. We certainly do, and Lou works with those clients. 
but predominantly people don't need to worry about estate and gift tax as currently constructed. Now, that may change. There's a lot of legislative efforts out there in the tax world, but we won't know until something actually gets passed. There's been a number of ideas floated. But for most of our listeners, that $15,000 per year is just a gift tax exclusion, and they would never have to file a gift tax return anyway because they're not giving away five-plus million dollars. So what that doesn't do is take into account Medicaid rules. And where does that run afoul of Medicaid rules, Frank? So the, the way I always kind of put this, and it's usually very polite when I do it, is that Medicaid doesn't care what your accountant told you, and they don't care about your gift tax exclusion because, you know, as we frequently talk about when we talk about Medicaid is there's the look-back period, and essentially what they do is they look back at all your finances for the past five years, and any money that you've transferred away and given to other people where you haven't received the benefit in return for your money is counted as a gift or a transfer, and they total all of them up. And for roughly every $11,000 you give away that they find, that is one month ineligibility for Medicaid purposes for the nursing home. So just using my example before, the family, if they've given away roughly $100,000, unless we do something about that, if we just apply for Medicaid, they're looking at you know, 10, 11 months of ineligibility for that nursing home before Medicaid's going to pay. They're going to get a private pay bill every month for those 10, 11 months for $15,000. And now mom doesn't have the money to pay for it because she gave her money away. Yes, common crisis that we face. So at the end of the day, the annual gift exclusion does not work in the Medicaid world, is not protected. People get confused by this all the time. And a key part of what Frank said that people may try to cling to is that transfers have to be made for value. And value isn't, oh, I'm nice to my mother or father or, you know, I mow their lawn so they paid me $11,000. Those things don't work. The basis for a transfer has to be established by you. Uh, in legal speak, the burden is on you to show why it's not a gift. It's presumed a gift. And that can be a, a pretty difficult burden. Well, I, I, I can tell you, I mean, I think we've been seeing it less and less as time has gone on just because the the older generation is passing away and the boomers are becoming more of the generation that's requiring the care. But the parents of the boomers really, really, really like to deal with cash, which yes. is great for some things. And it's really, really not good for Medicaid because when we're trying to track all of your financial history for the last five years, if you're dealing with cash and all we see is large cash withdrawals, unless you were keeping your receipts so where we can prove where your money was going, again, as Aaron just said, they presume it's a gift. We know it probably wasn't. You have to pay your bills, put gas in your car, buy your groceries, go out to dinner every once in a while. You, you have a life to live, but unfortunately, the way that the rules are, if you do large things in cash, that ultimately leads to problems unless you literally keep every piece of documentation to prove where that cash went. And that's one of the reasons why people like to use cash is because you can't trace it. So, you know, I'd be lying if 
if I would say we've never had issues with this, but I do think we're seeing less of it. But that doesn't mean that, yeah. you know, it's not good to talk about. Uh, actually, more recently, it's been, you know, um, lots of ATM withdrawals, which is probably the next generation of the cash issue. So lots of people take, I don't know, $200 out of the the ATM and have it in their wallet and spending money or, or whatever the number is. I remember my grandfather used to get 50 bucks a month out of his check. That's what my grandmother would give him. Um, so he could, you know, do whatever he wanted to do, get his haircut, get his paper or whatever. But apparently she also missed the index. <laughs> it was only 50 yes. bucks. <laughs> <laughs> she ran a tight ship, but, um, Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I think we're going to see more and more of that. And that was a relatively recent case. And so what Medicaid has the ability to do is to aggregate those. So if there are 10, $200 ATM withdrawals, well, one in and of itself isn't a huge problem and they usually wouldn't look into it. But if there are 10, they can say, well, here's a $2,000 transfer. What is this for? And again, you're applying for a benefit. It's not that you can walk in, sign a form, and you get it. That's not how it works. Um, it's not like getting a Social Security card or uh, <clears throat> certain things. It's, you have to prove that you are eligible for this program. So it's incumbent on you to then explain that transfer if it's questioned. And I think that's a, an issue people also have trouble grasping clients. Couldn't agree more, especially at the other, the other common one that again, we, we don't counsel people to do this, but we do hear it is, you know, can, if the house is, is an asset that's at risk, they say, well, can't they just sell it to me for a dollar? Right. Because then right. people have the impression that you're doing an actual sale. But as, as we kind of were already going through with this, you have to actually receive full value in return for your for your money for your transfer whatever it is that you're doing so unless you can prove that the house was worth only one dollar getting a dollar <laughs> in return for your house is not going to be considered an actual transfer and not penalizable by medicaid right and i think we can get into that more after the break we do have to take a break again this is a call-in show so if you have questions about medicaid eligibility trust wills um, in those areas, you can give us a call at 1-800-TALK-WGY. That's 1-800-825-5949. And we will be back after this break. Welcome back to Life Happens Radio. I'm Aaron Connor from Bureau Connor and Strauss, joined by our senior associate, Frank Hemming. And we've been talking about some, oh, Medicaid misses, we could call them, uh, Medicaid problems. But we also like to talk about some cases that we see, and we did see a case this week that 
people came into us and they needed Medicaid. Um, person had significant issues, physical, mental, probably both, and <clears throat> needed assistance. And as are often in these conversations, the spouse, if there is one taking care of the person that needs all of this assistance, is breaking down. So this is a common, common thing that we see. Uh, spouse puts a lot of time and energy. A spouse who's, generally speaking, not very much different in age than the person breaking down. So if the person who needs assistance is 85, this person might be 80, they might be 78, they might be 85 as well. And they put a lot of time and effort into caring for that person. So it takes a big toll. And at some point, they realize that they can't do it. And they probably can't do it just with the assistance of their children. Their children may not be working. They may not be geographically uh, proximate to their parents or whomever. So they need assistance. And the, the way to get that assistance is either to private pay or go Medicaid. And as we see time and time again, private pay becomes very expensive very quickly. Okay. Talked to clients this week who were spending in the neighborhood of $15,000 a month on home care, and it wasn't going to go down. It was only going to go up from there. So these clients came in. They needed, they needed assistance from Medicaid. Big problem. Certain assets were only titled in one person's name, and that person now had significant mental uh, shortcomings, let's say. Uh, they, you know, they had developed a, some kind of dementia or Alzheimer's disease, and they were not in a position to make any kind of ownership changes on these documents themselves. And we counsel people all the time, and they may say to us, well, they can just sign the document changing it over. And that's not something as lawyers we can really support because the person has no idea what they're signing. So that is not an avenue that we can take. And unfortunately, uh, and this has actually come up multiple times in the last, I don't know, few weeks or month or so, these people did not execute a power of attorney. And I think, Frank, we've, we've harped uh, pretty hard on the fact that uh, power of attorney is a simple thing to do, not expensive, and something that people need. Sure. It's... In a lot of ways, it's the most important document that, that I use for Medicaid purposes. Not that the trusts aren't great and the other documents aren't great because they all, they all kind of do different things. But the power of attorney is really the thing that unlocks all of the doors that we need to get through to get to Medicaid. And that's creating trusts, moving assets around, making gifts, making payments on stuff, changing ownership, changing beneficiary. It's, it's all the stuff with the finances that we have to do when we're trying to get someone down to $15,000 or less of assets and, you know, down to whatever income allowance they're at and redirecting everything. So, you know, without the ability to do that, we're kind of hamstrung with what we can do. And the worst part with this is if you don't do that document when you can, meaning that you're well enough to understand what you're doing, the only avenue is, is guardianship, which, that's primarily what, what you do, Aaron. And, you know, I know how much pleasure and pride we take in helping people. 
And it's usually, you know, something that we try to do our best to make people aware of the consequences of not doing certain things. But people would much rather interact with us when we're talking about a, a power of attorney and a trust plan than having to sit across the table from you when you have to talk to them about guardianship. Correct. So uh, <laughs> the biggest pain point of the guardianship, and there are several, is, frankly, the cost. Because if the person has assets, there's a petitioner's attorney, wife, kid, generally, someone like that, and that's usually the role that I am in. Then there is a court evaluator who's appointed to create a report, make sure that the person who's asking to be a guardian is appropriate, and that the person who we've alleged to be incapacitated is, in fact, incapacitated, because you'd be surprised. Sometimes people file petitions and the person is not incapacitated. Um, we've found that on a few occasions. And then the person who is alleged to be incapacitated needs representation because significant rights are going to be removed from them if they are, in fact, found to be incapacitated. So whereas a power of attorney would be a relatively low dollar figure, a guardianship will at least cost 20 times what a power of attorney would have cost, at least. And maybe could be 50 times. It just really depends on the case and what, what the party's attitudes are and many other things. But the factor I, of cost I, is gigantic. Could I just ask something here? Sure. So, so, so everything you just went through, that's like best case scenario, correct? Correct. Like that's if everyone's on board, everyone's in agreement, everyone's kind of on the same page with who's going to be making the decisions for the incapacitated person. The the point that I'm making here is if you have a family that isn't in agreement about that, then the other family members, other children, you know, maybe some other people, depending on the family situation, they might also get their own attorneys to try to fight who's trying to become the guardian. And now you've got even more people in the mix. That is absolutely true. Um, we've had guardianships that have approached just from a client perspective. We've had a few that have actually gone over, but uh, several that have approached a six-figure legal fee, which very few people can obviously afford to pay. But it does happen when, when people don't agree on what the best plan for mom or dad is or their sibling or Sometimes these are even over children because, you know, adult children, generally speaking, because they can go out and get in an accident um, and be left in a state where they need a guardian. And if mom and dad are not together, they may not agree on who can be the guardian. And there may be strong feelings about why one should not be the guardian. So all of those things play into that and play into the amount of fees that are generated. Again, moral of the story, do a power of attorney because there's no statute that's going to help you. So we are about to come up on the news. When Frank and I come back, we're going to talk about uh, Medicaid crisis strategies. We're going to give you some facts and then walk you through that. If you have a question, give us a call at 1-800-TALK-WGY. That's 1-800-825-5949. And we'll be back after the news.
Welcome back to Life Happens Radio. I'm Aaron Connor from Hero Connor and Strauss. Thank you for joining us today. Joined by Frank Hemming, who does some long-term care planning in our office. And when we say long-term care planning, that's kind of a jargon, I think. Uh, but what we mean by that is usually irrevocable trust to protect assets. But probably 80% or more of Frank's day is spent on Medicaid work whether it's meeting with clients or reviewing documents, um, checking calculations for penalties, as we're going to talk about. But um, Frank is probably waist-deep in Medicaid most of his week. Accurate? It's, it's, it's either the applications or it's the trust to make sure that your stuff is protected when you need Medicaid. That's, that's entirely accurate, yes. I, I do less of the actual applications now than I used to just because we have a few more helping hands in the office that help me with that. But, but yeah, it's, it's kind of Medicaid all, you know, every day, all day, unless something really weird is going on. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, I think one of the things to acknowledge out front is the unequal application of these regulations and rules. So these rules are, initially federal, uh, then there are state overlays on the federal rules. So the Medicaid program, states are allowed to do certain things. They're not allowed to put more restrictions on the rules than uh, exist federally, but they are allowed to permit certain things. A great example of that would be in New York, retirement accounts are exempt from the Medicaid rules. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. If they're in periodic payment status, there are very few places in the rest of this country where that is true. Um, so New York has decided to incentivize that. And that is a very good thing for our clients because a lot of them have a size of buyer, right? Yeah. In I, other I, states, they have you, to convert that right away. Yeah, go ahead, Frank. Yeah, so you and I spoke just, uh, I think it was Thursday, about a, a family I was speaking to. And it was two younger sons, unfortunately, had a lot of bad things happened within their family recently and their mother who's only in her, I think mid sixties is now in a facility and unlikely to ever be able to return home. And neither of the sons live in New York. One lives uh, in Massachusetts. One lives further South. And one of the questions I asked him was, you know, if mom's never going to get better and be able to return to the community, do you have any plans on moving her to, you know, another state to be closer to one or both of you? And they said, you know, we hadn't really considered it, but, but why Why are you asking? I'm sure you have a reason that you're asking. And I said, well, you know, some of her assets are pretty sizable retirement accounts. And right now, if she stays in New York and stays on Medicaid, they won't take that money other than the distribution she takes from those accounts. If you move her to Mass or pretty much any other state that would probably be in the mix here, though that, that rule doesn't follow her, and you're going to lose that money. So while the... Um, decision to move her should not be merely based on finances. 
you know, that, that is a pretty sizable financial decision that they have to throw in the mix when they're ultimately going to be making decisions about what's best for mom. Right. And we also counsel people when we're doing the long-term care planning, we talk to them about whether they're going to stay here, whether they're going to move south. Because Some people move south permanently. Other people snowbird. So there can be a very big difference there because some snowbirds, in fact, change their residence. Others do not. And if they sell their property here and they move to South Carolina or North Carolina or Georgia or uh, Arizona or Florida, the rules are going to be different. And that is something we need to consider when we're thinking about where they're going to be, what is going to be on the table. So that may drive some, some other types of planning. Now, even on top of the federal and, and state Counties can't make their own rules, per se, <laughs> from a legal perspective. But, Frank, fair to say that some of these counties have their own rules? Uh, more, more than fair to say, um, just to kind of give, give an idea. Um, now, this is not kind of exactly what we mean here, but I just want to kind of just throw this out here just to kind of show the difference in, in how the counties administer their programs. So, so I've been with the firm for six and a half years. Just taking a ballpark number, we probably do somewhere between 50 to 75 pooled trusts a year. You know, if I had a, if I had to take a guess. So, say we did 50 a year for 60 for six years, that that's 300 trusts. So, and we we work throughout New York State. We do much of our work locally to the Albany area, but we we work downstate. We work in the city. We work on the island. We've gone all the way up to Plattsburgh. We've gone up as far west as Buffalo. We've submitted a lot of pooled trusts to a lot of different county offices, and we had a worker down on Long Island call us and said that they were not going to open up uh, the Medicaid case we had submitted without getting a copy of the master trust from the pooled trust in addition to the joinder agreement. And I've literally never been asked that in six years. So when I said that to them, they said, well, that's our standard practice. You know, I, I said, if it's something that I can easily get for you, I, I gladly will because I don't want to hold this case up for this. But I've literally never been asked that before. So, and just, it's, just kind it's of not like cool trusts are new. For that. It's, yeah, it's not. No. They're not a new thing. Um, the We have a preferred pooled trust just because our clients have generally like them, not really for any other reason. But there are multiple ones out there. We've had clients go find their own pooled trust. That has had, um, <clears throat> well, mixed results, I think, would be the nicest thing I could say about it. Um, but there are other pool trusts than the one we use. But the one we use is not, you know, we're not wed to them either. But we use them because our clients are satisfied with them. And that is a big part of it. Because when you use a pool trust, you want to make sure that there's a good customer service level. And you know, things that need to get paid can get paid. but asking for the master trust is kind of hard to believe that they would have never dealt with our, you know, the pool trust company that we used before because they are one of the bigger ones, certainly. So that, that is strange. Um, in a more critical to a client sense, there are lots of varied application of rules though. Some counties, require maximization of an IRA, Frank. So can you, you give people a thumbnail of what that in fact means? 
Yeah, I can I certainly try without making this overly complicated. So when you have an IRA, 401K, 403B, 457, any of that tax-deferred retirement account type money, you're required to take a distribution from it when you hit the age of 72 under the current law. So essentially what happens is when you reach that certain age, there's a table. It's a life expectancy table. And they take the value of your account at the end of the previous year, they divide it by your hypothetical life expectancy, and then that determines how much money you have to take out from that account in that given year. So typically what we see is that the the financial offices, so that could be Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch, you know, your standard financial offices, they use a table for life expectancy purposes generated by the IRS. Some counties, however, have decided that they don't want to use the IRS life expectancy table. There's a different table that they used a long time ago when it came to looking at annuities and life expectancy that has different values for a person of the same age. So just to give an idea, the IRS table may say an 85-year-old has 15 years left to live, hypothetically. That Social Security table, the one that the county wants to use, may say you only have 10 years left to live. So if you take the same number and divide it by a lower number, you're going to have to take a higher number out of your retirement account. So some counties try to use the different table to try to have you withdraw additional money because if, especially in a nursing home situation, <coughs> all of your income except that $50 goes to the nursing home. So they are trying to incentivize you to take more money out of your retirement account. That way it's more money to the nursing home and less money out of the county's pocket. And that is a completely county-by-county county decision of which table they use. Um, Lou has been adamant about this practice, that this isn't right and they shouldn't be able to do this. And we have gone to fair hearing on this issue, and unfortunately we didn't get a favorable result thus far, but that doesn't mean we're gonna, we won't keep trying because the, the holding of that fair hearing was not, was not a strong one, and the, and the clients didn't want to pursue going to the next level of court involvement to see if this was actually the right decision. Yes, that's one thing that is unfortunate in the law is that sometimes you add, end up with a bad decision, and the economics of the bad decision aren't so bad that you're going to continue to pursue it because pursuing an appeal or filing an Article 78 is going to add a significant level of cost, and sometimes the bad decision just stands for, for economic reasons, nothing else. Um, we also have, generally speaking in the area, some uh, differing application of spousal refusal rules, um, whether counties will go after a spousal refusal above the amount that is contained in the law. And honestly, even sometimes when it's a county that does do it, sometimes they don't. And now maybe that's a person power issue where they don't have someone going after these people. But in certain counties, if you're over the roughly $75,000, they're going to come after you for your cost of contribution. In other counties, they will not, which can be the cost of contribution over a year could be $100,000. I guess it could be even more than that. Right, Frank? Yeah, I mean, when this 
first I think the first time I really ran into this was uh, it was a county up north, weirdly enough, because we we didn't think they would be one of the more aggressive counties when it came to applying these different rules with IRAs and stuff like that. And some of the things that they were trying to do was to maximize their IRA, and the difference would have resulted in I believe it was like fifteen hundred dollars more per month being withdrawn from the IRA. So. You know, that was kind of the first time I think I ever saw differences in county treatment, kind of the things that we're talking about here. We also have had, um, I mean, Aaron, you probably would be even more knowledgeable about this. I think there's at least two or three cases that I can think of where the county did start actions against people because of spousal refusals. And they sent kind of a very nasty letter saying, we're going to come after you now unless you do all these things we want you to do. And we responded and said basically no, and they just didn't do anything after that. So it's very hard to tell a lot of time of what the counties will and will not do on on a you know on a on a general basis. It's it's very case specific. So the best we can do is give advice just to, as to what we've seen in the past. And if something changes, then we have to pivot. All true, and w- one of I think the most difficult things we've seen clients grapple with is that they do a spousal refusal and take more than the 75000 off the table, we counsel them that that's not the end of the world that they, if they get sued. But <laughs> just the mere fact of getting sued is often very jarring to people, off-putting. Uh, I, I, there's probably a thousand adjectives you could use for it. But in a case of spousal refusal, when the county comes after you for spousal support, it is a big win anyway because all they can do is come after you for what they put out, which is dramatically different than what you would put out on a monthly basis. So it's still a gigantic win for a client to pay $8,000 a month, let's say, or $10,000 a month for a nursing home rather than fifteen, because over any period of time, that difference adds up quite dramatically. And that's assuming any of that action actually happens because Correct. You know, we can tell you the best, the vast majority of the cases don't involve that, but they, but they could. And that's, that's why we have to talk about all this stuff, even if it's not the most likely outcome. Right. There have been, it's been a while actually, since I think anyone's gotten sued, but you know, it can all happen tomorrow. That's, that's the thing. It's just because it didn't happen yesterday doesn't mean it's not going to happen today or tomorrow. That's, one of those uncertainties we continue to face. And as the budgets get tighter, you know that they're going to be coming looking for more and more money. So <clears throat> there are avenues available. So what we were going to talk about, and we've talked about some of the issues that would arise in that, is what people know as a rule of halves transfer, a transfer, excuse me, sometimes called a half of loaf. And this is, generally speaking, crisis planning. Um, sometimes we do these to cover past gifts, and I think we can go over that a little bit and why that's better. Um, but before we do that, we probably should take our last break because that will be pretty involved. So if you do have a question about Medicaid or any of our practice areas, you can give us a call at 1-800-825-5949 or at 1-800-TALK-WGY, and we will be back after this. Welcome back, everyone. 
listening to Life Happens Radio. I'm Aaron Connor, joined by Frank Hemming, both of Pierre O'Connor and Strauss, from the law, state planning law firm. We are talking about crisis planning for a Medicaid sense, um, and hopefully, if we have to do, hopefully we don't have to do this, right? You've planned ahead, you've done a trust, you set things up. Maybe we can do home care. If not everything's teed up to go to a nursing home if in fact that is the unfortunate result okay if you haven't done those things then we're talking about a crisis plan sometimes we may be able to keep you home in a crisis situation because still for a limited time which sounds like a sales pitch but um it's the truth in the legal sense there is no look back for home care although that window is going to close it keeps getting uh pushed back but i think that very soon we will have our 30-month look back for home care, and we will be doing crisis plans for home care, and that will make Frank's job a little more nutty because nobody really knows how all that is going to work exactly. I think there's a lot of good ideas out there, but you don't really know until you put the plan in place and then the county challenges it. But we've been doing these crisis plans for nursing home applications since at least 2006, uh, when the rules were changed to a 60-month look back. And sometimes, unfortunately, Frank, we're doing these just to cover past gifts. Yeah, uh, the the case I mentioned before, when we had the $100,000 that was missing, we were able to save a little bit of money, but the vast majority of money we were, quote-unquote, saving was money that was technically already given away. But by at least doing the plan the way that we have, um, we'll get Medicaid once the private pay funds that we have to use to get through the penalty period is over. So it's, it's a good result. It would have been cleaner if the gifts had ever been made. But a lot of times when families come to us and they need this plan, it's more likely than not that the money that was gifted away is no longer there to return and thus cure the problem. Yeah, that is 100% true, unfortunately. Um, And what people don't understand is if those gifts have been made and they just continue to private pay, if those gifts are in the five-month look-back period, Frank, then they have a real problem. Right. It's the it's the whole scenario where you know just to just to put numbers on it, right? If you had you had half a million dollars, and then you give it all away. And then your family spends the money because you gave it to them on houses, cars, college payments, you know, whatever, their own homes, uh, improvements, you know, something where the money just isn't going to be available to come back. If then you need long-term care, you apply for Medicaid because you say, I don't have any money. You know, look at my bank account. I don't have anything. And when they do that audit and they find those gifts, they're going to assess a penalty period based on how much you gave away. And the penalty doesn't start running until you're in the nursing home, you're financially eligible, and you apply. And that was one of the major changes that they made to the law back in 2006 when they changed all this stuff was because previous to that, the penalty started running when you made the transfer. So you could kind of get through the period easier because as soon as you gave it away, your clock started. That they 
they don't that doesn't work that way any longer. Now your clock doesn't start really until you apply, and you have to hope that you're out five years that they're going to catch you. It's very true, and it, it, that trips people up all the time. And if you wait to apply, you don't have any money to have come back, generally speaking, and then you you may not be able to get into a nursing home, or if you are in a nursing home, they may try to evict you because there's no source of payment. In those situations, generally what we see is the county allows <clears throat> the nursing home to be paid from what's called NAMI, net available monthly income. But if it's any kind of large gift history, you're not going to be a very desirable client because it's going to take a very long time for NAMI payments to make that up. And you're going to have a problem getting care and staying in a facility in those situations. Yeah. So just to, just to kind of parse that out just with numbers, right? If, if you're in a nursing home, but you're ineligible for Medicaid, you accrue a bill for every month that you're there because you're not paying it because you're not on Medicaid, you're ineligible. So if you were there for, let's say three months, you're going to have a bill of roughly $45,000. If your income is roughly $3,000 a month, it's going to take quite a long time before you just break even on that bill. And that's why it's not in the financial best interest of the nursing home at that point to keep that person in that bed because they're going to be underwater with that person for a very long time because they're, they're slowly just creeping off little pieces of that outstanding bill before they make any additional money. All true. And something that people don't think about, and you're really in a bad place if you don't have the money to cover the, the private pay period. So just to give people a little more information. So when, when we're doing these plans, let's say mom comes in, she has, dad's gone, she has $500,000 relatively low income. She needs a nursing home tomorrow. So maybe she's not there. Maybe it's her son or daughter or both of them, their power of attorney. What are we going to do, Frank? So we're going to look at the power of attorney. We're going to make sure that they can do all the things we need them to do. And then assuming that they have the authority or if they don't, we can get them in the authority by doing a new power of attorney. We do a complete audit on the five-year history for all of their accounts. That, they, that mom had during that time. We find anything hiding in there, see if there were any gifts or transfers made. And then essentially what we do is we then do a complex set of calculations where generally about half the money can be saved and half the money will be lost. So just to use numbers based on your example, if we had 500,000, we're gonna take 250,000 and we're gonna give it to the family. We're going to say, this is your inheritance. This is what we're saving. This is why you're doing this, because the nursing home isn't going to get this half of the money. So that's the that's the gift part, because we call it a gift and note or half a loaf for you know some of the other terminology you use. So that's that's the that's the gift part of it. The note part comes in because if in our scenario, if mom's got five hundred thousand, we give away two hundred fifty thousand. Mom still has an additional 250000 we have to do something with because to be on Medicaid, she can only have $15,000, $15,900 or less. So we have to make that second half of the money disappear. So in order to do that, we create a promissory note. And essentially what the note does 
is it loans the other $250,000 to the family with the promise to repay mom once a month for 25 months because it's going to be roughly $10,000 per month until that money exhausts. So the whole plan, and I know this gets complicated very quickly, so what essentially we have done is we gift away half the money, we create a penalty period. If we gave away 250000 we'd create a penalty period of roughly 25 months, and then we would loan the other half of the money to the family to pay over 25 months that would combine with mom's income and pay for the nursing home during the, the period of ineligibility, during the penalty period. And now we have software and we have lots of things and we get this down to the penny. It's critical to note, though, that you just can't do this on your own. You can't, you know, say, oh, mom's got 500000 I'll just take 250 and leave her with 250 That doesn't get you where you need to be. No, nowhere close. The, <laughs> just because just, just you kind of brought it up before, right, if, if the scenario, if we found an additional $100,000 worth of gifts, right, in the past, then instead of saving 250, we'd be saving 150 because 100,000 had already gone out. So that's one of those. That's one of the ways that this plan actually saves from past gifts as well. Right. I I understand we have a caller, but we have less than uh, two minutes left. So I'm going to ask if you have a question, you just send it to info at purelaw.com um, because we would not be able to give you really any kind of good advice right now. Um, but Frank has given a lot of good advice about how you do this the right way, um, how important it is to do the right way, because if the note is done incorrectly, you're, you're right back at square one. Yeah, then it, if, it's, if the note is done incorrectly, they can treat it as either an asset for Medicaid purposes or an additional transfer, neither of which is going to get you where you want to go. And it's going to be more things that have to be undone and redone if it isn't done correctly the first time. Perfect. So, obviously, if you have questions about this, you can give us a call at the office at 518-459-2100, or you can send the question to info at pirolaw.com. That's P-I-E-R-R-O. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Lou will be back next week. And we will continue to talk about all of these legal issues facing in the elder law world and in the Medicaid world. Thank you, everybody. And we'll see you next week. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.